This is Three Interesting Things. Hello and welcome to Three Interesting Things, a weekly podcast where we discuss the three most interesting things on the internet this week, as determined by you. I am your host, Don Grant. Joining me today in the co-host chair, I am thrilled to have the host of the dearly departed Only in Toronto podcast, the blog to podcast, radio personality, and it turns out just down the street from me, Danny Stover. How are you doing, Danny? I'm good. Thanks for having me. And yeah, neighbor. So you, uh, until recently, were the host of the BlogTO podcast, which uh, said all about the wonderful town that we live in. And was that an exciting thing for you to do? It was awesome. I, I call it kind of my audio love letter to the city of Toronto. Uh, I was able to speak to, uh, you know, basically, you know, we talk about the podcast being done and it's a very sad thing and, you know, being laid off and losing a job. Uh, but I don't feel like I've necessarily lost anything because I've got this body of work. I've got this new experience. And I literally got to talk to some amazing people in Toronto. So yeah, it was really fun. I'll bet your favorite experience was that time that you talked to Drake. Uh, well, there were several <laughs> little fake conversations. Uh, I will tell you, I did have a contact that I emailed and I was like, listen, this is a long shot. I don't expect you to even respond to me, but I would like literally die if I could get Drake. And she was, she got back to me. She's like, that's so funny. I'll see what we can do. Never heard from her again. But Considering how Toronto loving and Toronto centric he is, I, I'm I would have thought that you would have had a shot at him. I mean, uh, uh, me too. <laughs> um, <laughs> that being said, I you know, there's people that I never thought I would speak to, like, you know, Nav, uh, super fan for the Raptors. I spoke yeah. to, like, people I look up to, like Brooklyn Heights, a lot of drag queens, <laughs> people yeah. like that. So Cyrus Marcus Ware from Black Lives Matters Toronto, like, just so many people uh, that I really respect and, and look up to, like, so much so that I can't even remember half of them now because there were 485 episodes. <laughs> Are you ready to do this? I am. Here we go. Thing one. Thing number one. Clever hands. The horse that could count. This story comes to us from Medium.com, and this is a story I had never heard of. Had you heard about this before? I did know of Clever Hands, yes. So Clever Hands was a horse at the very beginning of the 20th century in, in 1904. He was owned by a German high school teacher named Wilhelm von Austen, who had a theory that he could train animals because he thought that they had significant cognitive ability. He was a bit of a, a person who studied this kind of a thing himself. He, he tried a cat who was not a big fan of math, tried to teach him that. He tried a bear who apparently was not exactly the most forthcoming and pleasant student to have. And then, lo and behold, he came across this Arabian stallion named Hans. So the interesting thing about Hans, and, and you know, people were very, like, taken aback by this horse that can count. It's basically like, well, what's two plus two? And he does, the, you know, four clops with his hoof. You know, obviously, this is a great party trick, but there are skeptics of this as well. And what they found was that, well, you know, animals obviously can communicate and they have their own ways of communicating. You know, maybe this horse wasn't as smart as we all thought, but it is interesting to think about the counting aspect and, and basically how in animals interact with people. And basically yeah. what happened was he'd read the room. So he would start clopping his, he his hoof. And then, you know, as soon as he got to four, he could read the room being like, oh, he got it. And he would stop. So it's not that he didn't know how to, maybe he didn't know how to count in the way we count. Um, but he did have ways of interpreting and communicating with people and with his his owner. Well, the crazy thing about Hans in his time, when you look at it, you can see why he was such a sensation because Van Austin 
pushed him farther. He taught him mathematical symbols. He taught him addition, subtraction, square roots. And the horse would always seem to get it. He would always tap out the correct answer uh, once for A, twice for B. He would spell out people's names. He showed him the alphabet. He, he would he would play famous musical scores for the horse. And the horse could spell out the name of the composer. Now, if you or I were sitting in the audience during all this, to be fair, I would be fairly impressed. Would you not? For sure. I think I think it is impressive. I My one thing is that are we actually teaching the horse to count and do math or are there other communicative patterns at play? Right. So at the time- I'm no fun at parties. <laughs> no. Hey, listen, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I am a skeptic myself and we're going to get to this because we're going to talk about you and your dog in just a second. But I'm a little bit of a skeptic as well. And at the time, the scientific community were also rather skeptical and they smelled a little bit of a scam because this was definitely the time where there were a lot of con artists out there. There were a lot of frauds. There were a lot of hoaxes. And so he volunteered the horse and he said, come on in, because according to him, there was no hoax. He was not hoaxing. He was not tricking in any way whatsoever. He legitimately thought that his horse was learning all of this and responding in a way so that he had this cognitive ability. Of course, as we know, when they finally decided to study the horse in 1907, there was a, another man of science whose name was Oscar Funkst. I love German names. <laughs> Oscar Funkst, who is a physiologist and a biologist who examined the horse and discovered, as you said, that what the horse was doing was reading the owner and reading the room. So rather than knowing what the answer was, the horse was looking at his owner and picking up those really subtle clues that sometimes even we as human beings don't pick up on and saying, oh, this must be the right answer and stopping at that particular point. And I think that's just as fascinating as teaching a horse to to talk or do math is the idea that an animal has that intuition. And I think of the why. Well, why was this horse learning this thing? He wanted to impress his owner. Right. I think that's a really interesting idea. Well, and and also, I mean, you and I both know, I mean, anybody who has had a pet knows that you can communicate with animals. Obviously, it's not in the same way that we are going to get in any uh, major movies or books or whatever, all the sort of mystical, magical ways that we're shown in Doolittle and various other things. But for anybody who's had a pet, you know that you can communicate with animals. The interesting thing about Clever Hans was that, I, I love the fact that he's just known as Clever Hans now. <laughs> the interesting thing about Clever Hans was that he was so good at just reading his owner that he could, you know, all the things that he did when, one, one of the other things that I thought was amazing was that he would be pointed out for, he would say, he would ask him a question like, if it's if the eighth day of the month comes on a Tuesday, what is the date the following Friday? And then Hans would answer by tapping his hoof 11 times. Now, I mean, it really does seem mind boggling. But what the horse was doing was just the basic act of looking at this man in the face and saying, oh, that must be the point where I'm supposed to end, which many of us wouldn't even pick up on. And this has now become a psychological school, which is called the Clever Hans Effect. And it's interesting. And that takes because they're not even using language um, necessarily. Like they are kind of using patterns and intuition and things like that. And right. to take it one step further, you can kind of go into exploring language and, you know, figuring out what it means to you as a human and then figuring out what those same words and phrases or sounds, mouth sounds mm -hmm. uh, that your animals can pick up on and, and what that in turn causes them to do. There's that kind of cause and reaction um, with language and the way we communicate as, as humans is obviously very difficult. And, and you're right, with, with pets, we're communicating all the time, whether it's our facial expressions, they read our body language, uh, they read sounds, and and they have their ways of communicating with us as well right. um, that are nonverbal. So I find that really interesting. And I, I think 
you know, to kind of pivot to you, me and my dog, because that's really all I want to talk about, <laughs> um, is uh, this dog that I've kind of fallen in love with on the internet. And, you know, millions of people have as well. But it's uh, this sheepadoodle named Bunny and uh, her owner, Alexis Devine. And they've been using augment augmentative and alternative communication. So these AAC devices. And it's like hex pads and buttons. And these are the, these are the talking buttons that you can These train. are talking right. buttons. So it's like Clever Hans, but instead of like stamping your foot on just the ground and counting things out, these buttons, you can stamp your foot on a button and it says things like poop. And- <laughs> outside and dad now when did when did bunny hit the zeitgeist because i remember last year the big one was stella do you remember stella yeah yeah so that's where uh bunny was inspired by christina hunger who owns stella and that's hunger for words so that's uh where that came from right alexis and bunny they just sort of seem to be way more online i think tiktok helped them a lot yeah, I know Stella also had a big profile in People Magazine last November. And then after that, all of a sudden, half a million people are now following them on Instagram. And and it became, in 2020, pretty much became the year of the talking dog and communication with dogs. So now, I'm going to ask you this, because you and I seem to both be somewhat skeptical and logical-based people. But at the same time, you are also pursuing this avenue of getting your dog to dog. <laughs> so obviously, you you still believe that there's some merit in this. So explain what your experience has been. My goal is to have my dog say, love you, mom. Uh, <laughs> that's really all it comes that's, down to. Honest to gosh, like that is uh, <laughs> that is kind of like what I was thinking. Uh, probably was one of my lowest points during the pandemic. <laughs> well, okay. So, they, you know, I watch Bunny and I'm like, oh, cool. Wow. And, and, and Alexis- now just to clarify, Alexis is your dog, correct? Sorry, no. Alexis is Bunny's. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay. Yeah. And your dog so is? I, my dog is Carmen. Okay, go to Carmen. So they also talk a lot about um, like confirmation bias and things like that. So there, she's skeptical and she's she's aware of confirmation bias, which is basically like processing information that you're looking for. It's like, I want this answer. So my brain unintentionally will find these connections, maybe where there aren't any, or maybe I'm forcing things together, but that is kind of this confirmation bias. So that's like, oh, hey, Bunny, do you want some food? Food. Yay. Right, right. Right. Yeah. Christina Hunger's description of her interactions with Stella, she says that she is talking or chatting with her, which is lovely and which is fine. You know, she says, oh, I just had a conversation with my dog. But the problem with that is that that sort of really narrows down the distinction between the button pushing and actually understanding language in the way that we as humans do. Because the dog is not understanding language the way that we do. They are just, you know, in, in something that's admittedly very impressive, demonstrating a learned behavior. Correct? Yes. Um, and, and yeah, for example, like, you know, Bunny now is on this, you know, level three of this. So Bunny is now saying things like afternoon now. So that tells us that Bunny understands in some ways uh, the concept of time, maybe not the concept of time, how we interpret it. But for animals, their concept of time is like probably more based on duration, how long something is. But then how would you even go about explaining that? So there's just so many little complicated things that, of course, could be chalked up to coincidence or confirmation bias. Or clever Hans. Um, or clever Hans, yeah, like training, intuition. So yeah, so anyway, I bought these really expensive buttons. <laughs> that, oh, listen, uh, when I say this has been the year, 2020 has been the year of the talking dog, if you Google talking dog buttons, literally the number one search result that comes back at the very top is an Amazon.com listing for these buttons, which is I'm sure they are selling them by the handful because Amazon has not made enough money this year. Well, and I didn't buy mine from Amazon. Ah, there we go. Okay, um, good for you. I, uh, I went through Fluent Pet, which... <laughs> is the ones that Bunny uses. Uh, And and the reason for this is I have a smaller dog. So Carmen is a chihuahua. She's also old. 
She's 10 years old. So where Bunny is breed wise, a very sharp, smart dog that's going to pick up. You got to tell you tell Bunny something once and Bunny will do it with a chihuahua. You got to tell them like a 100 times. (laughs) So just to clarify, what you're actually in the midst of doing right now is teaching an old dog a new trick. Basically, you have to model. So modeling is a big part of this is modeling the words that you want to use and get them to in turn use for you. So one of our big things is toy. She has a toy that she loves. We play every day for a couple hours, you know, in the evening. And so there's a time that's established as playtime. And then she's got her toy and she knows what her toy is. So we've been modeling the word toy. And I feel like it's almost training me as well, because <laughs> I feel like she probably thinks of it as like, oh, this button activates mom. To the toy. <laughs> but if you were, if it- if you were completely dispassionately charting Carmen's growth on a graph. she First of all, I'm surprised that she could. I, I'm, I realize halfway like what I'm talking about here, and I, I know it sounds very silly. Uh, she, the, the fact that she can press the button and knows that it activates a sound that then triggers a reaction is fascinating to me. Right. But, you know, it's just it's what it is at the end of the day is another step in a very long history. I mean, there's a a long and very storied history of animal enthusiasts and researchers and various other people teaching language to animals. Most of the time it's been our our cousins in the primate family. And most people thought that they would be the closest to share our language ability. And you have had Coco the gorilla and you have had uh, chimpanzees and bonobos trained to speak using sign language and soundboards, which are. And this is used for for even you know, types of early intervention to maximize uh, language development with, you know, kids who might be experiencing like cerebral palsy, for example, or Down syndrome. So it's, it's, it is a very well-known kind of application or process. It's just, you know, when you get a cute dog and a cute woman on with a beautiful home on TikTok doing it. Yeah. Social media has turned, oh, they turned them all into stars. Hey, speaking of which, going back to, um, going back to Clever Hans for a second, did you see what happened to him? Do you see, did you see what became of Clever Hans? Oh no, do I want to know? Well, I mean, good. It's 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 not all entirely bad, which is that he actually died in World War One. Oh, really? Like a war horse? Yeah, well, war horse in World War One. It would started in 1914, so he, you know, this is about five years after his big starring turn. Uh, he was called to fight for Germany, and according to the Animals in War Memorial Fund, eight million horses would go on to die fighting in World War One, and Hans was one of those numbers. He he, he died in 1916. He was a German. I mean, uh... <laughs> I know he was. Yeah, he was fighting for the other side. I yeah, guess. yeah. <laughs> Don't let the same thing happen to Carmen. <laughs> no, no. She would never. Thing two. And for thing number two, we go to Danny. Yeah, lawmakers in uh, the Scottish Parliament recently and unanimously approved a bill that will now require local authorities to provide free access to period products, tampons, pads, reusables. Uh, they were already offering them for free in, in many schools in Scotland, but this actually makes it legislation. Um, and this is and Scotland is the first country in the world to do this. I just thought of this as we were sort of getting ready today. You know, the the, the Mel Gibson meme of, of freedom. <laughs> that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! That had to have been used a number of times over the last few weeks after this was, after this came in. When I, I remember when the news broke and my wife and I were talking about it, I didn't know it was unanimous, which is really amazing when you think about it. it. Is, yeah. Because how many... Th- 
how many votes in any parliament anywhere end up being 100% unanimous? And this was entirely across the Scottish parliament that everyone voted yes to this bill. Yeah. And uh, Monica Lennon is the woman, she's from the Labour Party. She's the one that kind of spearheaded this. Uh, She's amazing. It really is, you know, addressing kind of an invisible issue that (laughs) exists everywhere in the world, whether you're a rich country or not so. It's one of those things that you know, especially in the pandemic, it's really exacerbated the the issue and and the need is very strong. But period poverty is something that uh, we're hearing a lot more about. And like I said, it's a bit of an invisible problem uh, because people don't talk about it. People are grossed out. There's a stigma. There's a reason why in commercials they show blue liquid instead of what actual color it is. Um, yeah. So things like that, where it's like, right, we're, we're just so used to hiding this stuff. Uh, but in hiding it, we're really putting people at risk. Menstrual health is health. But it is one of those things that we're like, ew, icky. And I just think that's, we need to get over that. <laughs> well, that's the funny thing about the the battle for this is that it really is a two-pronged battle. You have the battle of actual period poverty, which is the battle of there are many people who quite literally cannot afford products for their basic hygiene. And then you ha- you're also fighting the stigma as well, because this is a global thing. And I mean, you can talk about countries like uh, Nepal, where people are actually frequently put into huts when they are mm-hmm. menstruating. You can talk, but it's it, you don't have to go as far afield as Nepal. You can come right back home to North America where you can have statistics like there there are, you know, one third of people in Canada, right here in Canada, one third of, of women say that they have had issues with uh, affording menstrual products, with stigmas about them. In India, for example, only 12% of women in India have access to sanitary products and the rest have to use unsafe materials like like rags and sawdust and some teenagers even use insoles of shoes to substitute for products that they can't afford. It's it's insane when you think about it. But even in, in what you just said there, and it's true, and there are there are people even on the streets of Toronto right now, unfortunately, who are, you know, oh, I'm on my period while well, I have this old sock. It's terrible. Like it's, it's, I remember watching a video a couple of years ago when I first kind of got into this space and I was like, I had never thought about it before. If ever I needed a tampon, I would go to the store and, and buy one or I'd find one under the, the sink in my parents washroom and it was no big deal. Um, So when I found out the like, oh, right, if someone's having trouble affording food for their family, well, how the hell are they going to afford a box of $9 tampons once a month? Right. Uh, You mentioned sanitary and women. And I would just say I work for the period purse. I do some volunteer work. And this is the first registered charity in Canada that is dedicated to menstrual equity. Um, Even the term sanitary is kind of one that is laced with stigma in that it is a period should be is something that's dirty. So you need these products to clean yourself up. Yeah. Uh, and even I'd push back on the women because not all all people who menstruate are, are women and, and not all women menstruate. So there's those kinds of things, too, that, you know, we try to clear up and we try to just get the messaging across. But that but that all leads kind of back to your point about, like, reducing the stigma so that it's okay that we talk about this uh, within our homes, with our families, with our friends, at school, in parliament. I mean, these are things that we should all be talking about because they involve over half the population. And I would say the other half has periods to thank. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's very, very true. I mean, on average, the, the average woman, if we're talking about women, mm-hmm. menstruates for about seven years during your lifetime. So mm-hmm. when you think about that and you put the dollar value on that, when you put the actual monetary value on that, a lot of people who don't menstruate, like me, 
don't really think about it in those terms. But when you think of, I mean, as the person who does the grocery shopping around the house, I do know what the dollar value is. But as somebody who also has, you know, a fine middle class job, it's not something that I'm forced to think about the way other people have to think about it on a regular basis. Yeah. Even within our own country, um, in Canada, you know, there are some more remote places where these items might be harder to get, more expensive. You know, a lot of these shelters that would and do supply people with these products, you know, aren't always getting them when we talk about like food drives and, you know, food insecurity. Not a lot of people think about donating tampons, boxes of tampons to these places as well. So it's just, it's just a lot of awareness. And then, you know, that squeamish feeling that a lot of people and a lot of us have grown up with, it's just kind of like, listen, with the period purse specifically, those are our pillars. It's, it's advocacy, it's education, well, that's the other problem is that the the pandemic has obviously exacerbated this issue for a great many people mm-hmm. with some with a lot of people suffering financially. And the other thing you mentioned was was the education aspect of it when it comes to the stigma. I think a lot of people would assume that that education is largely based around just women, but it just cannot be. It has to be an education of pretty much everybody. If you look at some of the statistics that have been done about period shaming and stigma, you know, there was a, a study done recently that said that uh, more than half of men studied in the United States. So 51% believe that it's inappropriate for a woman to openly mention her menstrual cycle in the workplace. And I mean, as somebody who lives with three women, I find that astonishing that people are are that, I don't know, I don't want to say ignorant because it sounds harsh, but yeah, yeah, sure. Precious is a good word. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things. And I think it's because I've been in this, you know, working in this kind of space, I'll say it again, uh, for a while now that I forget that people aren't comfortable with it. I think just because I talk about it so candidly. Um, I'm sure there's probably many people listening to the podcast who are like, oh, they're, they're doing a bit on periods. I don't want to listen to that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm, like, I'm sure there are. Oh, yeah. I'm sure, like the listener right now, some of people are probably interested and I'm sure there's some people who have skipped ahead to the third thing. One of the goals is is that we can have it that, you know, these essential products are considered on the same, <laughs> on the same level as toilet paper. Doesn't that sound like such a lofty goal? No, hey, listen, it is a lofty goal, really, when you think about it, because it is sort of like toilet paper. A handful of U.S. states have passed laws mandating that schools provide period products to students. Uh, they deem them as essential as toilet paper. Federal prisons in the United States made menstrual products free in 2018. So the work has been done. It's just that it has not been done on a federal level to the extent that we just saw in Scotland in the last little while. So the Scotland vote was unanimous, as we said. Monica Lennon has been pushing for this for four years, so huzzah to her. Mm -hmm. And they now have two years to get this into place. They're still working out the details of the plan. One proposal that they're thinking about is modeling the system on the same thing that health boards already operate for distributing free condoms. So for example, in cities like Glasgow, anybody who wants free condoms can ask for them in doctor's offices or pharmacies or colleges or universities, and you'd be able to get period products in the same style or way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, the fact that uh, Scotland was the first and that this is a topic that's being discussed, you know, in the upper level of Scottish Parliament, I think that's a really important step. And I think that's something that hopefully will have a snowball effect. And I think in Canada, you know, we're we're a progressive country. We're open to this stuff. I think it just means a lot when you can legislate uh, legislate it. But yeah, I'm definitely pumped to see Scotland do this. And hopefully my hope is that Canada will follow suit. Thing three. Thing number three, the legal battles continue to get the wireless telegraph from the Titanic. So this has been going on for quite a while now. 
about a year or two ago, they decided that I, I say they, there's a lot of people yeah. involved in this. D- did you know how many legal groups there are involved in the Titanic these days? No. It's crazy. And I didn't even realize there was like a the Titanic Incorporated Company yeah. that is like trying to, you know, is in part of it. RMS Titanic Incorporated yes. is the private company that has exclusive rights to salvage artifacts from the ship, which we'll talk about more than in a second. But the thing that brings us to our attention now is the fact that the wireless telegraph, which is inside, just underneath the staircase, which you might remember Leonardo DiCaprio standing on and in, in his looking beautiful in his suit, it, that's where it is. The problem right now is the fact that the Titanic is deteriorating. They think that due to the iron-eating bacteria in the ocean, it probably has maybe another 20 years or so before it is going to not look anything at all like what we know it to be today. So what people are deciding they want to do is salvage some of these important pieces, like the telegraph, which sent out the, you know, the distress call in 1912. And so they want to go in and get it before it deteriorates and is unsalvageable. This, however, is causing a huge controversy. Hey, this might be a hot take. Um, oh, go, go, girl. <laughs> I honestly like, because I was thinking about this and I'm like, what's the problem? It's been down there for over a hundred years. It's literally looks like a bowl of Cheetos. Mm-hmm. Of course, the ocean is going to destroy it. When I think of disasters, like let's say this was a plane crash and thousands of people unfortunately died and we had this flaming wreckage, we'd clean that shit up. Yeah. Like, why are they being so... Like, I understand that people died and it's this mass grave, but I also think that there are things to be learned from collecting the pieces and it would actually prolong and respect the Titanic for longer. I think if we knew more about it and we could touch it and see it. This is the balance that people have have had been walking for years and years and years, right? The difference between understanding our history and preserving our history, and those two things don't necessarily always get along. So if you are going to say, why, you know, why is there an issue with this? If I'm going to play devil's advocate, I would say to you that if you are a relative of one of the people who died in the Titanic, we know it has already been established that this is a mass grave now. This is a mass grave for the thousands of people who died on the ship, and consequently, there their argument is that that grave should not be disturbed and that those people should be left to be in peace. And to get this thing out, they are going to have to cut pieces out of the hull, which has not been done before. What they've done up until now is they've salvaged things like shoes and brooches and jewelry and artifacts like that. But this is going to be, I I don't want to say destroying, but this is going to be altering the structure of the ship itself in order to get it out. And the relatives of the survivors are having huge concerns saying that this is a desecration of a mass grave. Yeah. And I mean, I can't obviously speak to, you know, someone who is like, oh, my grandfather was aboard the Titanic and it would trigger me to have it brought up or what. I, I don't know what they're feeling or or how I might be impacted by that. I just feel like then why do we dig up dinosaur bones? We do that to find out more about our life and more about the world and more about, you know, the history of the world. So why wouldn't we go in and say, listen, it's going to be destroyed anyway. Right. We're, we're knowing it's deteriorating. We're seeing it deteriorate. Why don't we bring a piece of it up that can help us further understand this, that can help us, like I said, further honor the people that lost their lives tragically? Yeah, I think it's a no brainer, actually, when I think of like, just go in, get it out, bring the whole thing up. Well, that's what, did, did you know they, they actually, they did think about raising the Titanic. This was something that was floated. Sorry, no pun intended. <laughs> oh man, I really wish I had intended that. They had thought about floating the Titanic and bringing it up to the surface to 
you know, renew it and go through it, et cetera. Do you know how they planned on doing it? Do you know what the plan was? No. They were going to fill it with Vaseline. No. Why? Because apparently there was this plan. It was proposed in 1986. They were going to raise the Titanic from the ocean. They were going to fill it with 180,000 tons of Vaseline. Another proposal was freezing the remains with liquid nitrogen, making them a giant iceberg that would then float to the surface. There were a number of ways that they wanted to do this. Now all of this has been shelved and they are letting the sea have its way. Yeah, it's those two ways sound ridiculous to me. <laughs> what, you don't like the Vaseline idea? And I can imagine like the poor people that have to like think about uh, how to like the logistics, right? Like, you know, when you like pick up, I feel like someone will go in there, try to remove a piece and the whole thing will just burst into a thousand little tiny dust particles. Right, right, right. Um, I don't know. I've, I've, I've always been fascinated by the Titanic. My mom growing up would have like Titanic parties on April the 14th, which seems kind of morbid. Um, <laughs> but we would have like, and we would have Cheetos that would represent like the, you know, the crusty bits. <laughs> um, we'd also have like E.D. Smith uh, chocolate syrup for our ice cream. Like we would have all these like little weird connections and we would dress as though we were going to the ship and we'd have these little tickets anyway i have so many questions about your upbringing (laughs) we hadn't had the internet so my mom was just like i don't know let's take this uh terrible tragedy and turn it into a learning experience and a fun lunch next week it's a pompeii party (laughs) my mom and i went to pompeii uh so yeah so but again i mean i learned a lot about it and i i'm i do kind of love a good shipwreck story but yeah, I feel like with the Titanic, it's just like, let's do what we can. How many people are going to see it at the bottom of the, the ocean? Maybe a handful. I am going to answer that question for you in terms of how many people are going to see it, because there's also a company in Canada that has just started selling tickets. Oh, boy. Uh, well, the the interesting thing is this is not what you as exploitative as you would think, although there's certainly that factor in there. They're selling tickets for submarine tours of the Titanic for around 125,000 US dollars, but it's not just a tourist trip. The idea is that you would if you decided to do this, you would become a citizen scientist as part of the scientific research team taking part in this project called the Titanic Survey Expedition. So it's this company called Ocean's Gate and they are the idea is that they're going to carry out a lot of week-long trips over the course of several years, and that they will be fully documenting the wreckage as much as they possibly can. Now, to be fair, it was found in 1986. I would assume it's been pretty well documented by now. Call me crazy. Yeah. But the team have this idea that they're still, they still are going to be conducting it with great respect for those who lost their lives. Of course, what else are they going to say? Uh, but they hope to make dives to the wreck uh, more common by using this privately owned five-person submarine, and that 36 people have already booked in for these first six expeditions. I mean, I'm not going to lie. If I had 125 grand uh, just lying around, I might be, you know, that sounds like a really interesting thing to spend that money on. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and you know what? I wonder, I wonder what it would be like to go down there. And we've, you know, I've seen footage of them going in their little submarines and stuff like that. Uh, I've seen footage of the wreckage and watched documentaries and all of that stuff. I wonder what it would be like to go down there and see it in real life. And to be like, wow, that's the ballroom and you can kind of see it's intact or there's like a remnant of stairs or, you know, I, like that would be incredible. So it would be a shame to, to lose that. But I think if we're going to lose it anyway, just get that, get the little radio up here. You don't have to bring well, up that... the whole ship, just bring up the radio. <laughs> that takes us back to the original fact, which is that in May, like this was a protracted legal battle. 
the company that was doing the salvage ran into trouble because a lot of people said they shouldn't be doing it. It went to a variety of different legal phases, which is weird because no one really owns the Titanic because it is in international waters. What people own are the salvage rights. That's owned by RMC Titanic Incorporated. They own the salvage rights. Other people own different rights to this, that, and the other thing. It's really weird, complicated stuff. And so in May... A judge in Virginia, of all places, go figure that one out, ruled that the salvage firm could retrieve the wireless telegraph machine that broadcast the distress calls. But the interesting thing is, as much as I have searched for this, I can't see and I haven't found anywhere if they actually did it. Now, so this was, what, seven months ago, eight months ago. I can't see if they went through with it or if this is still going through it. And I have searched through the intertubes for this and I can't find it. So maybe if the listener knows. Oh, that just made me think of something else. Oh, <laughs> never mind. It was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how many Titanic survivors does uh, it take? <laughs> well, it was funny because uh, you know the the they say that the last transmission on this uh, this radio that they they want to recover or possibly have recovered uh, was come quick engine room nearly full and it, I feel like that Bunny the dog could have said that. <laughs> And that will do it for this week's episode. Danny, oh my goodness, I am so thrilled. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you. I got to talk about dogs, periods, and shipwrecks. I'm happy. We didn't talk about dogs, periods. Do dogs menstruate? <laughs> well, they do for a little bit till they get okay. fixed. <laughs> do you have any socials you want to throw our way? Uh, yeah, you can follow me on Instagram. I just like to keep it complicated. On Instagram, I'm, da- I'm Danny Stover. On Twitter, I'm Danny Gray, G-R-A-Y. You can follow the period purse is a good one as well. Please, please tell me that you are going to come back and do this thing again with me. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. What's the most interesting thing you've seen on the internet this week? Fact? Story? Article? Something else? Whatever it is, we want it. Email us at 3interestingthings at gmail.com or hit us up on Instagram at 3, that's the number 3, interesting things. Or tweet it to us at 3, that's the number 3, interesting. You'll get a shout out on the show. If you're enjoying the show, head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. It helps other people find the show. We'll see you next week.